All right, people. Welcome to the Onyx Report. Today is going to be a little different. Might be a little ghetto at points. Um, right about now, I'm trying something I haven't tried before. This is not necessarily my training in terms of how I'm broadcasting today. So today is the first time we're going to broadcast on live on innerlightradio.com, as well as on my YouTube channel, Dr. T. Hassan Johnson, and on my Facebook page simultaneously. So I'm navigating a couple of different computers, and I'm going to apologize in advance if there are any technical issues, <laughs> but I wanted to simplify this a little bit. So this way, you know, some of you guys who've been listening to me for a while know that I broadcast on Interlight Radio, you know, Black-owned uh, media channel, and I do that every first and third Wednesday, uh, but then I go on YouTube Live, um, usually, you know, every second and fourth Wednesday, but from now on, I'm going to be going live every Wednesday at five, and you can catch me on Interlight still on first and third Wednesdays, but you'll always be able to catch me on YouTube and Facebook. So um, trying to integrate these different uh, you know, systems, and, and I'm still learning, um, but it's coming along. It's coming along. Uh, so I'm going to be able to look at the chat on YouTube and Facebook uh, while we go, and I want to thank a number of people for coming in already, uh, already um, got a donation before the stars, the show started from Jerome. Appreciate that. Uh, those of you who want to support the show, uh, please do so. You can reach me on Cash App at, at uh, dollar sign Dr. T Hassan J at PayPal, PayPal at T Hassan J uh, or Patreon or Venmo. Um, you know, so please make sure you support the show. I want to thank people in advance for coming through. I see uh, Professor Conroe. Uh, I see Miss Parrish. Uh, uh, Professor Brazil or, or Basil, excuse me. I don't know why I'm tripping. Uh, Dr. Basil's in here. Good to see the brother here. Um, number of people coming through. Uh, brother Sara, if you miss his shows this month, his show is next Tuesday. Uh, I believe that's at 730. That's uh, so look out for Brother Sara in terms of that. Uh, Malika, what's going on? I see a few people in here uh, already that I know. And I think this one is is, is one that caught people's attention. Um, I, I usually go through a number of different, um, you know, different uh, current events, but I'm not going to do that this time around. I am going to say that people can call in at Interlight Radio at 310-928-7733. Uh, if you have something that you want to say that's a little more than that, because the sound is going to be a little questionable. I actually have to hold the mic to the speaker uh, and my computer speaker isn't, my laptop's uh, speaker isn't that, li that large. So you can also email if you want your comment to be uh, read. Uh, it'll be innerlightradio at yahoo.com. And then we uh, we are on Skype at inner underscore light underscore radio. So those are the three ways you can reach. You can call in, reach me tonight, 310-928-7733, um, innerlightradio at yahoo.com and Skype at inner underscore light underscore radio. All right. So just a few ways to get at me tonight. Thank you, Xavier Brothers. Appreciate that support. Um, so as we all know, um, what's been big in the news this last week has been Jada and Will and the whole situation with them. And although I really don't, you know, I don't really deal with a lot of celebrity gossip and so on and so forth. Um, there were some aspects of this that caught my attention that I thought were interesting and needed to be teased out a bit. So I did a show on YouTube, if you haven't seen it yet, uh, where I, I more explicitly go into my thoughts about Will and Jada and what's going on. 
I called it uh, Will and Jada Black Male Monsters Failures and Double Standards. That's on YouTube. Uh, so you can check that out and kind of look at, you know, some of some of the things I suggested on there about how we can better understand the situation. But um, a, a good friend of mine sent me a tweet. Now, I had seen the tweet a little earlier, but I didn't I didn't catch it and didn't really you know post it. But uh, the tweet, nonetheless, I thought really captured a number of things I was thinking in regard to my response to the Red Table talks with Jada. Right. Jada and Will talking to one another about what went on. And Jada said some things that I thought were kind of a little questionable. But uh, this person who just has a zero uh, up, I think, for their name, uh, but made a very interesting statement. Let me actually let me see if I can bring it up, um, at least for my YouTube audience here. So the statement was really interesting. It said, Jada is masterful at weaponizing the language of healing and emotional awareness to present the facade of introspection and reflection, all for the purpose of evading accountability. And I thought, you know, that is exactly what I was thinking. I mean, it was really well stated, really straightforward, uh, and I appreciated that. Um, so I thought that was very much needed um, and was very clear. And so I had some thoughts after reading that, that I posted alongside uploading this tweet. And it kind of caught on, a number of people jumped in uh, and, and, and really kind of responded to some of my thoughts. So what I'll do is I'll read some of the things that I, I said, um, and then from there we'll kind of dive in to some of the different aspects of this, right? So my response to his tweet was, um, you know, I said, I must say I've been seeing more and more of this over the last few years. As more women seem to identify as life coaches, counselors, art readers, oracles, high priestesses, dating coaches, queens, prophetesses, and goddesses, I've noticed the weaponization of spiritual ideas around, heal, uh, around uh, healing mixed with an exploitive lack of accountability. This is reminiscent of pastors who use Bible to rationalize the abuse of their positions to exploit the same populations these nouveau pseudo-spiritualists seem to prefer underage adolescents and the emotionally and psychologically vulnerable. But as much as there's a language to call that out in the church, meaning we've all learned to picture a rich, wealthy male church leader who exploits women, girls, young boys, and men, we're only just now starting to develop a picture for female spiritual and therapeutic predators. But don't get it twisted. She's always existed, mainly due to Jada's blatant and deflective use of the term entanglement and her adamance about her affair not being a transgression against her husband or a breach of trust against Og, we're slowly starting to see that women can also weaponize status, age, wealth, maternal qualities, their presumed innocence slash incapability of being considered predators, and even psychological terminology to exploit boys and men who can literally bench press them and avoid accountability while doing so. We're starting to see that gender alone does not determine who can exploit or oppress the vulnerable, regardless of one's physical strength, status, or gender of the victim. And we're starting to find empirically, according to the data, that men are the victim more often than we think. And although hashtag me too has shown us several types of female predators, we've never developed an archetype the way we have for men. Is it finally time to do so, right? So basically my thought on this is it is. Right. It's, it's kind of past time that we learn to do so. And we frame out some of what we see. Now, this is not just to arbitrarily denig denigrate. 
contrary to the popular opinion. I'm sure people are going to, no matter what the conversation is, going to limit it to that. But I really do offer this in, in with more of a of an intent to help than not. And the reason I say that is growing up since the 80s, I look, I came from a time period when I remembered when they started putting the pictures of kidnapped kids on milk cartons. I remember the campaigns that were put together to, to talk to us about date rape, to talk to us about the ways in which different types of mostly men were you know, predators and how they were predators. I, I was born in the era, era of the serial killer, the era where the serial killer was now being brought out into light and, and being analyzed in terms of the impact. I remember the time period through the 70s and the 80s where you went from a framework where women could walk through parking lots late at night by themselves to where they had to be protected, they had to have weapons, they had to be prepared to be attacked. I remember the transition society went through as all of those things happened. And with that, and I'm not saying that's bad, it just I just remember seeing those transformations, but with that came an analysis of men, men that were now seen to be you know, predators in a variety of different forms. So we, we saw it in the church, we saw it in terms of the serial killers, we started to see movies where you had a, a, obsessive boyfriends who stalked and tried to kill people and there's still these movies coming out. I think I mentioned the, 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 the new ones that's coming out, I think it's called the Fatal Attractions, it's not Fatal Attraction, that's the classic one, but uh, there's some kind of Fatal Affair or something, it's gonna be on Netflix and it stars Nia Long and Omar Epps, both of whom were actors I genuinely like. I, I'm, I you know, I, I like them. I'm sure they're probably going to give a great performance. It hasn't come out yet, but you can find it uh, soon on Netflix. But Omar Epps is yet again, you know, one of these crazy stalker boyfriends, much like, um, you know, I think the film that came out not too long ago was The, the Perfect Guy. I think that's what it was. It was a few of these little films like this, um, you know, and, and so with these kinds of films, you know, shout out to Emotep. Uh, appreciate the, uh, the, 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 the support. Um, with these films came a growing distrust of men, but it also came with a kind of pantheon of personalities that we needed to now be aware of in regard to men. Um, and even though you had a film like Fatal Attraction that showed, you know, what, uh, you know, an unhinged woman could do, and it scared the hell out of a lot of men who went to go see it, I don't think that we really had a, like a kind of pantheon of, you know, behavioral archetypes that really kind of frame the various ways that women can be predatorial and problematic. I don't think we, that really kind of caught on in the, the, um, in the, uh, the, the mainstream, in the public sphere. Right, Mike V, appreciate that. Sanaa Lathan, Michael Ely, and the perfect guy with Morris Chestnut. Absolutely. So you have this kind of crazy, you know, black male, and it, it, it crazy male in general, but then it got specified to black males in particular. And then from there, it kind of linked itself to the oldest stereotypes about black men. So you kind of had these Mandingo um, kind of characters who, you know, were highly sexually driven. You had the noble savage, because usually now these guys could wear a suit and they were professionals and they were white collars, white collar professionals at that. And then all of a sudden at night, they were killing your boyfriend and chasing you down and watching you in the shower and all kinds of stuff. So you had all of these different personalities that came about. And I think there's some things that we overlook in not raising the question of how women can be problematic, can be predatorial. I think as long as we haven't done that, it leaves us vulnerable to what women are capable of. 
And we don't often know how to make sense of what they're capable of because we haven't allowed for what they can do, right? Because it's not really a consideration, we, we don't know how to frame what behavior we do see that's problematic. It just becomes something that's attributable to that one person. But that's not what happens with men, right? If you just took like the predatory pastor by itself, Almost every pastor in the country came under investigation, sort of, officially or, or unofficially, informally or formally. They all kind of came under investigation because now we had this archetype that we can measure their behavior against. And as soon as they may do something that falls within that framework, we quickly know how to categorize them. But again, I don't think we've done that with other demographics in that way. And I think it's time that we begin to really ask that question. And I think Jada kind of, you know, brought that to the forefront, right? Because here we see this um, this established, you know, famous, wealthy, uh, intelligent, beautiful black woman who is taking a young man who's actually a friend of her son's, who is in a vulnerable psychological and emotional state by her admission, right? Engaging him in what she described as a maternal way but then that maternal way, way turns sexual. And when you're dealing some, with somebody who has grown up in a context where he just came forward and admitted that he had been sexually assaulted at a young age, there was a lot of early life trauma, apparently, that he was dealing with. And then, he, you know, with the fame and drug use, you know, he's psychologically and emotionally vulnerable. And again, by her admission and her response to that was at first a kind of very maternal desire to help. And then all of a sudden that becomes something a little different. And it's clearly not something he, August, was prepared for um, and, and apparently even years afterward is grappling with. So that said, there is something to be said about what's going on. There is something to be said about the ways in which people can exploit their positions, whether we talk in formal or informal positions of authority. And so in this instance, I decided to, as you can see from the title, address this question of what happens when the counselor, mother, queen, priestess, goddess violates you. Now, this is a fairly new phenomenon that I've seen in the last number of years. Uh, and this is, it's, it's especially, you know, something that I'm, I've been seeing with black women, right? Where you have this mother, queen, goddess dynamic kind of taking place. And I see it happening hand in hand with the advancement of black women from the 1970s to the 2000s. Right. We started to see this kind of advancement that took place on terms that we weren't particularly familiar with. And Maleka is shouting out a couple of other films, No Good Deed, um, that kind of went down that same route. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, anyway, so. As we saw, you know, this kind of advancement by many black women, we began to see a shift in behavior and attitudes and in perceptions, not only of themselves, but of black men as a collective. So you, you, we can go through the 1980s, the period of I don't need a man. We can go through the period of uh, I'm an in, I'm independent. I don't, you know, uh, to to and, and even Eddie Murphy kind of called this stuff out back in the day at that time period. Ain't nothing going on but the rent. You know what I mean? What have you done for me lately? He wasn't wrong. These cultural productions that took on and were popularized by many black women were reflective of the changing times at, you know, at going on. Black women were newly able to take advantage of double minority status in regard to affirmative action, meaning that with the federal government, with private corporations, they could now be sought out, sought out 
to meet quotas because they satisfied two categories. They served both as women and as black. Uh, alongside that, you had access to higher education, right? Now we're talking about a K through 12 system for the most part, there's over 90% female in regard to the faculty, right? That's not supposed to have an impact. Well, I think we're seeing boys falling behind girls and we have been seeing it for the last few decades in unprecedented numbers across race, right? So you're already beginning to see women, uh, girls being pulling ahead of boys. And then you start to see that transition going into college to the degree that right now from 1976 to 2018, black men have literally half the degrees black women do, right? So black women were courted, they were funded, you know, and in, in able to transition into higher education. And then from there into white collar jobs far more readily than black men. And they were received differently. You know, I've made the argument on this show many, many times that black men and black women live very different qualities of life. Well, at least until Corona, we'll get to that. So with these kinds of advancements, with this type of employment, black women were far more readily employed than many black men. Even if they were being paid less than white women for the same job, they were more readily employed. And some of the recent data is showing that black men actually make 51 cents on the dollar in regard to white men. Uh, black women are somewhere around 64 to 68, somewhere in there. So black men, when you account and, uh, for incarceration, are the only group that actually make less than their men. I mean, than their women, excuse me. I'm trying to monitor multiple things here and make sure we're good. All right, sorry. So these changes really begin to kick in in the 1980s. And when we start to see the 1990s, we're starting to see, you know, you know, girls going into college in much more robust numbers and from there working quality jobs. Right. Uh, so these things all begin to have an impact. And I, I make the argument that when you have these kind of massive shifts, especially when they have material gains. Right. Th th these kind of environmental shifts create different perspectives, worldviews and attitudes that definitely shift how a population functions. Right. So with that, by the time you get to the, you know, the last 10 years and you're hearing about black girl magic, none of that is a surprise if you've been paying attention since the 1980s. It's not a surprise at all. This is a kind of, uh, of showing a pride, but it's a showing of pride that comes with a certain type of advancement that many men were blocked from having. And so even when black men made more money as blue collar workers, that didn't come with the status of having a degree and a six figure income. Uh, of having of being a white collar college educated worker, so that that whole dynamic uh, bifurcated the realities of black men and black women. Right now, alongside that, you have shifts in marital uh, conditions. Right, nineteen seventies, sixties, and seventies. We saw the the you know the entrance of no fault divorce. We saw the impact of new family courts and judgments about child support, judgments about child custody, many of these things pivoted against men. So with that, wealthier men could handle a divorce. They could go through three or four of them, but poor men, not so much. You know what I mean? Very different dynamic. Um, so that said, the impact of marriage severely uh, hampered uh, black men in ways that it didn't necessarily hamper others, right? As well as uh, birth control. Now, I'm going to play a couple of clips by two very famous comedians. This may or may not get me booted off of YouTube. If YouTube goes out, just uh, I'll repost it and we'll get started. But 
again, I told you some parts of tonight might be a little ghetto. We're going to see if this works. Um, but I'm going to play two different men on two different issues. So bear with me as I try and get this going. My chair is stuck. And these are on two issues that impact black men um, in a very serious way. Okay. Uh, let me get this here. All right. That's not what I wanted it to do, but we're almost there. All right. So we will start off with just a few seconds from the great Chris Rock briefly talking about, uh, let's see. He is talking about, where did I put him on? Uh-oh, did I lose him? And like I said, bear with me, people. I am getting better at this, but it is a process. Hmm, looks like I lost it. There we go. So why did it disappear? All right. I think I found it. That is not it. <laughs> Man, I'm telling you, this stuff looks easy when you watch other people do it, but when you got to do it yourself, it's a bit of a mess. All right, here we go. So I'm going to, from my radio audience. I'll have to share the speaker. As ghetto as this is, but let's see if we can get Chris to kind of comment about what we're seeing here. Here we go. No, uh, that's animal. Oh, crap. I think I know what I did. I think I was supposed to. There we go. Share audio. All right. Here we go. So this is Chris Rock commenting on what we're talking about. And let's hear what Dave Chappelle has to talk about. Be real with you. And I know nobody gives a fuck what I think. Anyway, uh, I'm not for abortion. Oh, shut up, nigga. for it, but I'm not against it either. It all depends on who I get pregnant. I don't care, I'll tell you right now, I don't care what your religious beliefs are or anything. If you have a dick, you need to shut the fuck up on this one. Seriously. This is theirs. The right to choose is their unequivocal right. Not only do I believe they have the right to choose, I believe that they shouldn't have to consult anybody except for a physician about how they exercise that right. Gentlemen, that is fair. And ladies, to be fair to us, I also believe if you decide to have the baby, a man should not have to pay. That's fair. If you can kill this motherfucker, I can at least abandon him. 
It's my money, my choice. And if I'm wrong, then perhaps we're wrong. Figure that shit out for yourselves. Sorry about that. I think I closed down a page. I didn't mean to, so I'm sure that'll come back to haunt me in about a second. Whatever page that was, I'm pretty sure I needed it. All right. So I'm hoping everybody could hear that. The reason I played those two things there is because they spoke to the changes that black men have been dealing with in society. Right. Starting with Chris Rock, he's talking about the impact of divorce. And everybody treats divorce like it's a it's something that should just happen. It just is what it is and call it like it is. But again, as Chris Rock pointed out, if you make a few million, it's one thing. If you make 30,000 or 20,000, it's another. And this is what black men began to deal with by the time we started to get to you know the 1970s and onward, right? Divorce now had teeth to it that impacted, especially working class and poor men in a way that we, we couldn't fathom. Right. By the time you get to the other issue, right, Dave Chappelle commenting on abortion. Now, the reason I play that is because alongside marriage, one of the impacts that, that really hit us was birth control. And black men, men in general, still have the same options we pretty much had since the 1950s in regard to birth control. Um, but at the end of the day, um, women have had a, a much wider variety of options than men have. And this has pretty much allowed them to control their bodies far more than men can control ours, right? So before, during, and after the sex act, they have means whereby to determine pregnancy. Uh, for men, we have, you know, you know, you got condoms, you got uh, abstinence, you got the pull-out method. That's really about it, right? So the moment you have said, hell, I remember they used to try to scare the hell out of us in junior high. And they'd be like, well, if you were wearing underwear and you were grinding on a woman, you could get her pregnant. <sighs> well, yeah, when you don't have any other birth control options as men, those are things you need to be concerned about. So what Dave is pointing to is part of an agenda that men have been slowly developing and are still debating with one, one another about. And that is a male agenda, particularly a black male agenda. And what would be on it? Right. Well, one of the things that would be on it might be increased birth control methods. But if not that, what they call a financial abortion. Right. If, if, if a woman is pregnant and she gets to determine what happens with the baby and, and you know, should 18, the next 18 years of your life be determined based on what happened one night where she gets to choose. And so what he introduces is the option of what, what's called the financial abortion. Now, this has been around as a concept for a while, but Dave kind of gives it to us in a very natural and casual way. Right. Where basically, if she has the option and she should of determining what to do with her body, men should have the option of participating to the extent that they choose to. If we can't have any say about what goes on with her body, should we be able to have any say about our participation? Now, it's not a matter of whether or not you agree with it, because a lot of people didn't agree with what a lot of women and feminists in particular put forth uh, decades ago. But. You know, these are conversations that they were having and they got to determine the degree of participation they wanted to have. Well, I think men should be able to have that kind of voice as well. So these kinds of conditions and issues have produced discussions among men, especially in the last 10 years, about what, you know, what access to rights they actually have. 
and what they should be able to have. But nonetheless, the reason I bring all of that up is to point out that when we see a shift in black women's behavior in particular and women in general, a lot of it is because you have all of these environmental conditions and policies, changes in the law, changes in the social sphere that directly impact men, but men haven't really been able to engage that. Now, I have a caller and I'm gonna try to bring him in, but again, this is a little ghetto. So in order for my Facebook and YouTube crew to hear me, I'm gonna have to try and see if my computer can play the voice of the caller. So let me qualify this. Uh, I bought a couple of mixers. I couldn't get either one of them necessarily working. So we got to kind of jury rig this a bit. To those of you that choose to call in, please be brief. Please be to the point. So I can, I'm going to have to repeat your question more than likely. Uh, it's better actually if you email the engineer at innerlightradio at yahoo.com uh, or come in um, as it with a Skype chat message. So let me try and get this in and we'll see if we can get the caller on. Hold on. Let me turn the sound back on here. Okay. All right. Is the caller on? I am here. Okay. I'm not sure too much if, if my online audience can hear you, so I'm going to need you to be brief. Uh, do you have a question or a statement? Okay. Yeah. How you doing, uh, Dr. Hassan? Good. Um, I just wanted to relay that in terms of the, the psychology, um, I had to relate to my own daughter. She's taking psychology up. Uh, she's going to have to get a master's in it. Um, but I had to relate to her that you have to understand that if you don't put into context healing in terms of the family, any kind of individual model that you use, um, be it to overcome depression, be it to, go, be it to overcome any kind of individual frailty, if it's not putting it, put into the framework of the family, it's, it's going to end up being a, a fail at some point because we were meant as human beings to be integrated into a unit. So I was telling her, you know, just like in, in, the, in the case of, uh, of her uh, not having access to me because uh, there was a situation where her mother uh, restricted my access just on a whim. And uh, she suffered emotionally for that, so she had to take therapy. But I said, what kind of therapist did you have that didn't get to the nitty-gritty? Like, yes, the therapist can, can treat your depression, but did the therapist just ask you, frankly, where is your father? You understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Get to the root of it. Where is your father, and how does your father not being in your life to the degree that he wants and you want, how does that affect you? So you can we can go through life having these band-aids of feminism and only fixing the woman, you know, and, and only looking at the individual failings, but without looking at the family, right? There's always gonna be a continual failure. And and, and until we take that seriously, right, we're always gonna we're always gonna say we have a success individually but it's going to be a continual fail that we're always going to have to come up with fixes. And, and that's what, that's what's happening in, in the case of feminism. Okay. All right. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. Ian is also very much in the chat. So um, uh, you can also engage in there. Um, all right. So I'm going to transition back in, but appreciate that comment, sir. Yes, sir. Okay. Let me. All right. So uh, thank you for letting me know you guys could hear him. I appreciate it. 
Um, I'm going to get better at this, so it'll be a little smoother in the future. But for right now, a lot of this is practice. Um, Okay, so kind of transitioning back in, uh, one of the things we start to see is the first recession, 2007, 2008. And in terms of Black women's employment, now you're starting to see some severely different situations going on where people are losing you know, property, people are losing jobs that they've grown very dependent on that paid them really well, you know, six-figure incomes, all kinds of things of that nature, and you're starting to see it. Um, I knew you know, plenty of people all through the 90s and the 2000s who were serving as corporate consultants and all kinds of things making, I mean, we would get, I remember graduating with a woman, an undergrad, we both graduated the same exact time. We walked in the same ceremony. Within two months, she had a six-figure job consulting. I don't know what you consult at 21 with a bachelor's, but she was consulting and making six figures. Those were the kind of jobs that you started to see, especially by the time you got to the first recession, uh, the the great recession, as it were, where you started to see those kind of jobs in question. Um, But overall, all of that, one could argue, doubled down that much more by the time we get to COVID, right? Now, black men, on the other hand, uh, in 30 major cities, we're, we're experiencing 40 to 50% unemployment, and that's before COVID hit. So by February, half of Black America's lost its jobs. As of last month, half of America lost its jobs. So we know the Black rates are, are probably just horrendous. And now you have people all over the board trying to figure out how to get back together again, trying to figure out, you know, especially among many women, what the use and value of men are again, because they haven't had to think about it in quite a while. So there's a lot going on right now. And again, I bring all of this up to try to kind of kind of frame how we get to the mind state we do. So again, in the last 10 to 12 years, many black men are witnessing this kind of idea of you know the the, the magical black woman, the incredible black woman who's doing X, Y, and Z. And you know, it's interesting when you look at it because men, on the other hand, who are you know societally excluded as black women are included, right? They're being treated like failures, right? So here's what I mean. Socially, black women's advancement is treated as a collective reflection of their brilliance. Whereas black men are treated as failures and, and their failures are individual. In other words, they are a product of their own failures. They produce their own failures. Right. This is something that we we used to be able to explain. We talked about racism and white supremacy. But now as we transition into this era where black women were finding secure employment and doing well, since racism can't be at fault and since black men don't live a different life than black women, then it must be that they're they're failing on an individual level. So we're seeing collective advances by women being applauded and failures for black men being viewed as a result of their individual uh, behavior. This is the kind of dynamic we see. So now, all that to say, now we start to see this rise in the last decade of the life coaches, the dating coaches, particularly for women, right? And I'm seeing the mother queens and the high priestesses and and the and the goddesses and they and, and and again, I'm not talking about this um, from a vantage point of a, of any kind of framed uh, form of spirituality or religion. I'm talking about this just in terms of the frequency of it as it pertains to black women expressing these ideas and expressing them professionally, starting businesses that target only black women, 
right? And predicated on the the idea of black girl magic. And so we're starting to see this. And I, I, I would actually be amazed at how often I would see these same kind of ideas articulated in different spaces. But for the most part, nobody really directly confronted it. We just kind of witnessed it. It was like, okay, you know, more dating coaches, more life coaches, more high priestesses, more prophetesses, you know, these kind of ideas coming out. But it's not questioned. I think when we get to Jada, Jada kind of introduces into the national consciousness, particularly in Black America, the underbelly of, you know, this kind of maternal uh, figure. Now, she's never called herself a life coach. To my knowledge, she hasn't called herself a goddess, but she's part and parcel to this idea, right? She's very much part of that Black girl magic movement, red pill, red, red pill, Red Table Talks is very much a reflection of that with her, her mother and her daughter kind of sitting in and advising, giving advice and, you know, kind of uh, critiquing other people as well as, you know, kind of holding themselves up as models for a certain type of behavior. You know, so all of these things are kind of happening in a way that I think give us an opportunity because of Jada's recent actions to really look at what the impact of this kind of counseling uh, mother queen culture can be. Right. Because here's one of the major facets to it. It's not to be questioned. It's not to be examined. It's not to be challenged. None of those things are supposed to happen. It's supposed to be accepted at face value simply because it comes from this cast who are who have been doing well and, and have now in the recent last few months. Well, I'd say starting in 2015 with Black Lives Matter, but definitely a resurgence of it in the last few months of protests have kind of reclaimed the position since 2015 of being the country's moral uh, kind of compass. Right. Um, they, they, you know, they stand in this kind of position of being, you know, being able to kind of tell America what's wrong with it, while at the same time telling men and particularly black men what's wrong with them. It's kind of this untouchable moral position. Right. But in this, I think there are some archetypes that we can begin to look at. And I'm not going to treat this show as an exhaustive framework for what the archetypes are for all time. But I will say, I think it's the beginning of a dialogue about how we can begin to identify uh, very predatory and exploitive and manipulative behavior on behalf of this. Now, again, this is not to say that there aren't any other aspects to this. What I'm about to point out, I'm merely saying is one of many. Now, um, now hold on, let me back up a little bit. I wanna shout out Black Uru Strikes, Darius, appreciate that support. Uh, forgive me if I'm if I'm missing you, I'm just you know trying to navigate a few things here. Uh, Chief Rocker, I appreciate that. Uh, Red Lion, thanks for the support. All right, so people are donating, Alpha Sigma, appreciate that. Um, of course, uh, real red pill table talk. <laughs> That's uh, from my boy Valdez. Uh, so check him out. If you haven't seen Juan Angry Man Valdez on YouTube, you definitely want to check him out. Um, uh, he uh, is definitely one of the people that inspired me to, to, to get up here alongside BGS Idmore, who's in the comment section. Appreciate the support, brother. This is all happening in the comments on YouTube. 428 people watching all together. Please get the likes up, support uh, the show. So what I'm going to get into at this point is what I'm considering to be 12 archetypes, right? We're going to look at 12 archetypes for this cadre of women. Now, this is not about 
how women actually are. This is the this is the framework for how some have manipulated and weaponized, you know, this kind of mother queen status in different ways. Now, these are very also very particular to um, relationships, and they kind of reflect for us how you know black men are approached in regard to relationships. So I'm gonna see how I can get this thing up here, hold on. Okay. Uh, trying to get this chart up here. Again, I told you there were gonna be some elements of this that uh, might be a little ghetto, so it is what it is. We're working on it. Um, see, this is the kind of stuff um, you know, some of the YouTubers who've been doing this for some years, like Valdez is, is real savvy with, uh, whereas, you know, for most of us, it's still, we're still just learning it. All right, so this is the only way I could get this from now. All right, so uh, I put together what I called, you know, black female predator archetypes, a template for framing gynocentric relationship archetypes. And this isn't to say that men don't have them, it's just that I think black men's, or men in general, but especially black men, I think between film and media, we've been kind of engaged very deeply. You know, whatever our issues are have been have long since been put up there. I think we've been uh, DS1. Thanks for the cash app support. Uh, our issues have been put out there for observation very clearly. Right. But for for women, that, again, hasn't happened. So I looked at 12 different archetypes that I think kind of frame what the you know the various personality types or archetypal frameworks are for um, you know females, particularly coming out of a gynocentric experience in the black community for the last five decades, for the reasons that I've already broken down, women have in many ways advanced in ways that um, uh, and ways that uh, black men haven't. And this has put them in a, a position of authority in families, put them in a position of authority in terms of entrepreneurial advancement, put them in a position of authority in electoral representation, mainly due to education. It's black women who are advancing on all of those fronts in far greater numbers. But with that kind of representational presence, they've still not been examined in terms of the impact, the darker side, the underbelly, I should say, of, of, of this kind of movement. And yet black men have experienced these things, but they haven't been talked about. Now I used for inspiration, a website uh, by one Carolyn Miss. Uh, she runs miss.com and apparently she's a five-time New York Times bestselling author and renowned speaker in the fields of human consciousness, spirituality, and mysticism. And on one of her pages, thanks Mike V, I appreciate that support. Um, Yes, he was talking about the uh, new statue raised um, of a female BL BLM protester in replacement of a Confederate statue. Black men die by state violence only to raise a black woman in the place of justice, right? So in other words, these are the organizations he's referring to that in many ways have, you know, really advanced themselves off of really heterosexual black male death while telling black men they can't hold any substantive, substantive positions in the organization, they can't lead, and they definitely have to stay in the back um, because it's now time for women and LGBTs to do so. But again, there's no problem using our deaths to advance themselves. So highly problematic. But again, this is all reflective of the moment. It's still reflective of the moment. So I was saying 
Carolyn Miss's website is one that I use, and she had 70 different archetypes that I kind of, you know, used as inspiration for the 12 that I decided to pull out and examine uh, more forthrightly. All right. So uh, the first one, hold on. Let me see if I can get that going here. All right. So the first one I have up is what I call the spoiled virgin child. Right. So this is, you know, usually I would say it's 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 usually younger women, but it doesn't have to be. Again, these are all archetypes. So, it you know, you'd be surprised who can embody them has nothing to do uh, necessarily with age. But the idea here is you have an archetype of um, this kind of spoiled child. And the mantra of this person is spoil me. Right. So in, when they engage with men, particularly black men, the idea is that in order for you to be considered a viable candidate, you have to spoil her. You have to meet her needs. You have to anticipate what they are. You have to buy uh, for her, spend on her. But here's the thing. At the end of the day, she can never be satisfied. Right now, with each one of these, I'm going to pose a healthier alternative, a healthier opposite to her that this is kind of based on. So in the opposite dynamic, you have, you know, a person who's actually willing to accept direction, to accept help and to give it. Right. But, you know, each one of these I'm, I'm talking about is a very specific type of problematic um, archetype in the behavior. So this one, the spoiled virgin child, you're talking about one who, um, for the most part, expects you to cater to her uh, at, at all times to meet a set of needs that you will not only never know, but never be able to meet at all anyway. The second one is the diva, right? The diva is something we've all be been made familiar with, okay? The diva is something we've all been made familiar with. Uh, basically, her, her mantra is be my fan, right? And that's what you are. You are permanently her fan, right? Um, but here's the thing about her personality. She never leaves the stage, as it were. So um, you will be in a position of permanent fandom in this kind of dynamic. Now, the opposite of her is a confident woman that knows she's not the center of attention. That has nothing to do with her confidence. But the diva is an exaggeration of this, a really problematic one. And many of these people at the end of the day often need some type of therapy and haven't gotten it. So they've developed very problematic personality types in response to that, right? So the diva usually is, um, yes, brother told, brother truth, um, usually is considered socially beautiful, conventionally beautiful. Um, and so she's able to kind of build on that, but often to an unhealthy degree. So you are permanently her fan. Then you have the overbearing mommy or the over overbearing Madeer. Now I place Jada in two of the categories I'm going to go over. And this is the first one. The reason I use Jada at this stage of it is because Jada, when she talked about her dealings with August, one thing she talked about was the desire to help him, seeing him hurt the way she did. And even down to the look on her face, you could see this kind of maternal performance at play. And I do think that's actually a part of her personality. I think you know, and I said this in my rate on my previous video on Will and Jada. I think she's one of these kind of people that likes to fix broken men. You know, when you look at kind of the track record outside of Will 
and the men she's been with from, and you know, we argue about whether or not she's been with Pac. I think she has, but call it a friendship either way. I think she's drawn to broken men. And a lot of that you're dealing with this kind of template here, right? Now, this is the kind of fig, this is the kind of person that will mother you into what she deems perfection, but that perfection will never occur. You will be a permanent child in her, her assessment. You will be permanently somebody that she needs to um, breastfeed, so to speak, and develop you, right? But absolutely, Professor Conroe, she's broken herself, but she gets to project her brokenness onto you, you know, and, and use that as a, as a controlling tactic to stay in a position of superiority. Now, understand something. Each one of these archetypes is a, a way of controlling, a way of positioning oneself as above the other. Don't get it twisted. These are not accidental, right? But the overbearing Madeir is one of these kind of figures that dominates through maternal instinct, through maternal performance, um, and has this underlying belief that you must be fed at her teeth um, at all times and guided. And one day you will grow into an adult she respects. But the idea behind it is you really never will. There is no growing up. So if you accept this contract with the overbearing Madeir, you will permanently be her child, right? The next one up is the sexual slave. Now, there are two highly sexualized archetypes I'm going to point out, but they have some slight differences, right? Sexual slaves mantra is rule me, psych. Now, I'm dating myself as somebody who grew up in the 80s. So if you're not familiar with psych, that's that's me. But psych just means basically, you know, I take that back. It's not real. She performs a very sexualized identity. She performs a kind of desire to be dominated, a desire to be uh, handled with a very sexual overtone to it. But the reality is she performs this with many different people. You're not the only one. Right. Now, the opposite of this is someone who knows the boundaries of sexuality and doesn't let it determine her overall being. But at the end of the day, this is the performance of somebody who is using sex and sexuality to actually um, control you. Now, again, these people here are often women that have had some sexual trauma themselves and have not been adequately, um, you know, they've not sought therapy. They've not been able to really deal with uh, these early experiences and are in many ways responding to um you know, some of the kind of things that, that they, they still haven't outgrown, they still haven't healed from, but they use sex, uh, Dragon Master, appreciate that support. They use sex to control, right? They use sex to dominate. They use sex to, um, to have men uh, provide them with whatever it is they want, but they have many to do this with, right? So be mindful of that. Next one up is the psychologist, Right. And her mantra is always follow my prescription. Right. The psychologist is the one in the relationship that's always going to tell you what you need to do and, and, and whether she has a degree or not. Or she'll have a degree that's in a whole different field or no degree at all. Right. You know, she could be working at 7-Eleven. Doesn't matter. She's still going to advise you. And it doesn't matter. You yourself can be a fully trained psychologist and she will still advise you with this kind of air of you know, um, her having been trained, right? Uh, but she implicitly knows what's best for you and she's going to constantly prescribe what you need to hear at all times. Now, the opposite of her is somebody who will provide counsel when asked, 
but can admit what they don't know and know the boundaries of their skill sets. But when you're dealing with the psychologist, this is somebody who has been entitled, somebody who thinks, now understand with all of these archetypes, the reason I spent so much time framing the 70s through the 2000s is we're talking about a time period where you have the rise of the gynarchy, particularly in the black community. You have the rise of the culture, again, where black men and women are living very different lives. You have the rise of a culture where women are being trained from birth to believe they are fundamentally better than their men. Their men are beneath them. This is what I call the concuserfs, right? Their men are beneath them inherently. And when you've grown up in a situation where you've seen your mother, your grandmother, and in some situations, even your great grandmother, right, as the sole deciding decision maker in the household, and men are considered intrusions, men are considered distractions, right? Men are considered temporary help to be alleviated and dismissed at your whim. When you've seen that for two or three generations, that's where the idea of male inferiority comes into play. And I, I'm saying to you that each of these archetypes are affected by the last five decades of this. But in this particular instance, what I'm telling you is you have somebody who, regardless of whether or not she's ever been trained, sees herself in a natural position above you and in a position to advise you uh, by giving you what you need to understand what it is that you're dealing with, right? Um, and she's going to tell you what that is at all times. She's going to advise you and you need to follow her prescription if you want to stay with her. Uh, uh, Rogish, appreciate that support. All right. All right. So the next one up is the mystic prophetess. Charles, appreciate the support. The mystic prophetess, right? Her mantra is do what God tells me to tell you what to do. All right which sounds like, you know, what she already told you to do before that, right? So if, if she's been trying to get you to, um, you know, I don't know, if she, she's been trying to get you to to uh, fix her car or to do something like that, and then all of a sudden you don't do it, when she gets the message from on high, it's telling you to do the same thing she's already been trying to tell you to do. Now, what I mean here is you have those who will invoke intuition, God, the whole, you know, there's all kinds of different uh, uh, narratives that can come into play. But whatever the force is that's deemed as higher than you, as well as her, she has a line into this force, be it by intuition or special message that you don't have. And she needs to tell you what to do in order for you to be able to adequately follow. All right. So this is the idea. In order for you to adequately follow you need to do what she tells you to do. And her, her direction is given to her mystically in a way that you can't hold her accountable for, you can't question her about because it's not coming from her in, her, in, in terms of what she says, it's coming from on high, All right? So the mystic prophetess, you have to follow. And if you don't follow, at some point, karma, God, whatever it is, is gonna get you. So again, do what God tells, you know, her to tell you to do. So this positions her in a, in, a, in a seat of authority, but she herself doesn't have to own responsibility for that authority because it's really coming from beyond both of you, right? That's the, that's the central idea, right? Next up, what I call the combative provocateur, right? Her mantra is, I will argue you into submission. Every engagement with her is an argument. 
every conversation is is either combative or competitive, right? All of it. And really the combativeness is about finding new ways to position herself above you, but being willing to debate and argue you into submission. And for many men, it's not really a submission that's brought about by weakness. It's, it's one that's brought about by exhaustion, right? I mean, at the end of the day, what we're talking about here is a dynamic where black men are navigating the world. They're fighting the world, so to speak. But, um, oh, thank you. I apologize. I must have switched switch the screen. See, this kind of stuff sneaks away on you. Uh-oh. Now, is it flashing for you guys? Because now the screen is flashing for me. I can't tell. Okay, it says you can see the slide. I hope so, because I don't know why it's... Okay, let's try it again. All right, so we'll go from there. That's not what I wanted. There we go. All right, I apologize, people. Um, all right, so we got the combative provocateur, right? I will argue you into submission. Argues at every turn, every engagement is an opportunity to fight to win control. Ironically, she seeks control of men, but if and when she ever gets it, she loses respect for them right away. So here you have a dynamic where you are constantly fighting. The more you fight, she might actually respect you, but she's not going to treat you well. The moment you give in, she may even marry you. She'll stay with you. She may even have kids, but she won't have any respect for you. Right. But this is somebody who dominates through argumentation and even nagging uh, as a way of controlling uh, her partner. Right. And now the opposite of her is, is somebody who knows the difference between dialogue and argument and knows when uh, a discussion needs to end knows when to give in, knows when to give it opportunity and time to let people reflect. Somebody who has a, an understanding of human dynamics and communication that can leave or can make her point, listen to what's being said, and then allow for there to be some opportunity to internalize that and grow together with somebody. But the combative provocateur argues for the sake of dominance. And she will, she can overcome you just by pure exhaustion. Exactly, Linus, emotional drainers, right? This is the kind of dynamic we're seeing, okay? Let me see here. Next one up. This one is a little different than the one I proposed earlier. The seductress slash prostitute. And again, these are actually uh, uh, inspired by the work I mentioned of, uh, from Miss.com. Thank you, Professor Conroe. Appreciate that support. The seductive prostitute or seductress, um, her mantra is be my phallus, but for a cost, right? She'll make you believe your sex is the best thing in the world, but both objectifies and uses you uh, for a variety of reasons. It could be for sex. It could be for money. It could be for status. But the difference between her and the other figure I brought up early, the other highly sexualized uh, figure I brought up, the sex slave, is that the seductress doesn't necessarily even need to enjoy sex. For her, sex is a tool uh, or sexuality is a tool in and of itself, right? So all of these things become tools for her to use for a particular end. And that end can be all kinds of things, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be just cash. It can be whatever it is she deems as important. But the point I'm making here 
is for her, sex is a tool. Whereas for the sex slave, you're often talking about somebody that's experienced trauma. And sex is an actual integral part of her makeup, right? It's, it's a part of her psychosis. It's a part of how she gets down. For the seductress, not necessarily. It's a tool. She may enjoy it. She doesn't have to. Now, the opposite of her is one who can enjoy sex, but offer something other than that in the relationship, right? She understands the limitations of sex uh, because in and of itself, sex can't make the relationship. But, you know, um, when it's actually problematized, when it's when it's something that um, is a part of a, a tool for control, it becomes a very different thing. Okay. All right. Let me see here. Next up is what I call the scholar teacher. All right. The scholar teacher. Right. Her mantra is time for class. You may now be seated. Right. Every discussion with you is pretty much rooted in what she needs to teach you. Now, this is a little different from the psychologist because the psychologist is dealing more with your inner workings and what she thinks you need to be doing differently in yourself to better perform for her. But the scholar teacher kind of advises you on life as a whole. Right. Uh, tries to convince you that only she has the skill to advise you in all matters, even when you don't ask. Right. Um, she sees herself as the authority. Uh, she sees herself as the one that needs to teach you. If she's just read a book or just taken a class, she's going to teach you all about it, which in and, of its, in and of itself doesn't have to be bad, just sharing things. But she's not just sharing things for the sake of sharing things. She's sharing things for the sake of control, right? She's positioning herself above you and having you uh, or trying to have you become her student in a permanent sense. This is a class that you will never graduate from if she has anything to say about it, right? She takes this position with every, you know, especially intimate relationship she has. Um, the opposite of her is someone that accepts what she's skilled at and what she's not. She knows her limitations, but the scholar teacher is going to be your, uh, your professor in every engagement at every turn, okay? Next up is what I call the disingenuous diplomat. You know, the, 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 the earliest... The earliest example of this I could think of was you remember Vanessa from the Cosby show. You, if, if, you may, if you haven't watched the show in a while, then you, you may not remember the nuance of it. But Vanessa was very much like this. The disingenuous diplomat. Her mantra is, let me explain why you're wrong. There's no reflection on whether or not you're wrong. You are wrong. And from there, she's going to explain to you why you're wrong. And you're wrong simply because you, you may have proffered an opinion that she didn't sanction. Right. Uh, this is somebody who arrogantly presupposes you have nothing to teach her and will assume to lead, uh, will assume the lead in all matters, but likes to feign the appearance of fairness and consideration. She will feign listening to you. But at the end of the day, she already knows that whatever she's going to do and what you need to do will come only from her. Right. Now, the opposite of her is someone that actually cares what you think and genuinely asks for your thoughts in earnest. And when given, she genuinely reflects upon them and can repeat back what you said and tell you what she thinks about your thoughts. Now, this is important. When I say can repeat back, there are people that will talk to you. And when you're speaking, they're merely waiting for you to stop speaking so they can continue. That's the only reason there's pauses in the conversation. You may be talking, but what you're saying is inherently irrelevant. And it really doesn't contribute anything to the conversation. So she's waiting for you to finish so that she can continue. Right. The disingenuous diplomat, though, likes to feign the idea that she's listening. 
the idea that she respects what you have to say, but she doesn't. That's the thing. So some of you may have met the disingenuous diplomat, but that's the kind of uh, you know person you're dealing with. Next up, the exploitive queen. And as you can see, I have Jada in here too, right? Jada is in this framework as well. I think she, she sees herself in this kind of maternal way, but there's also this element of the queen, right? And the exploitive queen, you know, her mantra is kneel and pledge your fealty to your queen. Okay. Looks like we got another caller. So I'm gonna I'm gonna let this caller come in very quickly and uh see if uh we can contribute. Oh, looks like they hung up. My bad. All right. I told you we 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 working on this. So one step at a time. I appreciate y'all's patience, by the way. And if I'm missing your cash apps or your, your super chats on YouTube, forgive me. Pharaoh, I appreciate that support. Thank you. Um, Desmond, appreciate the support. Uh, yeah, it was flashing um, <laughs> to emphasize the type. <laughs> okay. Um, but thank you for the support, y'all. So the exploitive queen, right? Now, this is one we've heard a lot of. And I've been hearing it since the 80s, right? I'm a queen. You're a queen. Hey, queen. You know, this kind of queen language we've been hearing a lot of. And I think part of the problem with it is is there is no, well, it's two things. One, you don't have to do anything to be a queen. You just call yourself that. Or if you're in the black conscious community, you call women that and hope that they'll dig you. But there's no qualifications for it. You just, it's just extended to anybody that feels like using it. But as we know in the real world, the whole idea of a queen is, is you know, it it's it's a very rare and select group of people that can even use it. They have to be raised in power, married into power, so on and so forth. Forgive me. Oh, man, I'm dropping stuff. All right, I think we're good. All right, so the, the other problem with the queen, however, is that in this instance, the queen does not recognize the existence of the king, which is interesting because when you really look at the royalty framework, and this is something Patrice O'Neill, my, my favorite late comedian, used to break down, you don't even have queens without the existence of the very idea of a king, right? The kings make queens. So a queen may marry a man, but he doesn't become a king. But a king marries somebody, she becomes the queen. But with this exploitive queen idea, right? There is no king, often. The way she kind of sees the world, it's, it's all her and only her, right? She demands to be the ruler of her world, yours, and everyone else's around her. Wants to be idolized and seen as the most beautiful inside and out, right? But she's, much of her behavior is based on your willingness to provide fealty, to serve her at all costs, right? And to question that or to not do so is considered one of the highest of offenses, right? The opposite of her, again, is a confident woman, but a woman in this instance who's clear about her sexual marketplace value and understands uh, her worth in a very realistic and grounded way. Understand that she serves the family rather than rules over it. There's a difference, right? There's a difference. There are leadership styles, whether you're a manager in an office or a CEO of a corporation or head of a household. You can see yourself as a ruler or you can see yourself as a servant makes a very big difference in how you engage people. The exploitive queen solely engages people as subjects that are beneath her. But again, there is no king. 
Even if she may use the term to compliment you here and there, she does not see you as her equal or her better. And even when you are, by her standard, if her measure is income or if her measure is degrees obtained and you have more, she still doesn't see you as being over her by her own chosen metric. She still doesn't see that. You are permanently, this goes back to what I said earlier, you are permanently beneath her because this is how uh, we've been socialized. And not just the women, the men have as well, right? In a generation, generation X, we were the first generation to really be raised on a large scale by our mothers. This idea of being beneath women was something that both men and women got, right? But the exploitive queen comes out of that kind of framework and we all serve. But what's beyond the exploitive queen? What I call the shamanistic earth goddess. The shamanistic earth goddess. Her mantra is worship me. This is the exploitive queen on steroids. She just doesn't rule a kingdom. She is the queen of the earth, right? She is the living embodiment of the goddess, right? You worship her, right? She is never wrong. She can never be wrong. She can't be guided. She can't be redirected. She is the truth, which is different from the prophetess, right? I mentioned the prophetess uses an outside source as her perfect reference point to tell you what to do. The goddess is the outside source. She's not, it's not outside. She is the embodiment of it, right? Now, again, depending on your spiritual practice, I'm not saying that can't be a part of your spiritual practice. Each one of these 12 archetypes are a product of dysfunction and they are a product of often entitlement and narcissism that is produced by changing conditions in the last few decades. Conditions that have propelled black women in ways that it hasn't propelled black men. And so in response to these environmental changes, you have behavioral changes that are several generations deep at this point. And so one of these is what I call the shamanistic earth goddess. Now, her opposite, if we're going to use, say, a metaphysical archetype, um, she doesn't have balance in an archetypal sense. So in other words, just like with the queen, if you're going to call yourself a goddess, then what is your counterpart? The god. They don't, however, ever meet the God, right? They are the only divine being in the question. Right? Divine is a Judeo-Christian concept, but you understand what I'm saying. They don't recognize the existence of the God. They are the only ones that exist in that sense. Um, uh, she is the goddess who is now the same version of somebody who uses this, even metaphysically, acknowledges that she is a complement to the God. The masculine principle does not bend to her. It leads, right? They complement. Uh, his role is often outward. Hers is often inward. This produces a different kind of relationship. Uh, but to her, in terms of this kind of dysfunctional idea of a, of a predatorial feminine archetype, she sees herself not only as above you, but above everybody. And you serve her. Again, very similar to the queen, but on steroids, right? This is the goddess. So what I'm saying to you in this is that you have a variety of different methods used to reinforce the idea that you are inferior to her. And it can express itself in a wide variety of forms. It doesn't have to be limited to one, right? It doesn't have to be limited to one. 
So all in all, we've seen, um, let's see. We've seen the spoiled virgin child, right? We've seen the diva. And I'm usually better at arranging these. I apologize for how sloppy they are, but I really decided to even create this PowerPoint at the last minute. So bear with me. The overbearing Madeer. SC Talk, appreciate the support. The sexual slave. The psychologist. The mystic prophetess. The combative provocateur. The seductress slash prostitute. The scholar teacher. The disingenuous diplomat. The exploitive queen. The shamanistic earth goddess. Okay. Now, this is just the beginning point. I'm just offering these as a suggestion to start the conversation, but look at the various types of really narcissistic behavior, right, that we've seen come about. But narcissistic behavior that comes about, particularly from a cadre of women who have not been critically analyzed the way men have, right? And I think it's necessary. Now, I've seen each one of these in different forms. I've seen each one of these different forms, and I'll give you a couple examples in a moment, but I think we have uh, two callers on hold. So I'm going to get the first one up here if we can. Okay. Who do we have? What's your name? Where are you, where are you from? Um, okay. I think you might have to turn your background down. Which one, which one do you want to talk to me or the other guy? Oh, I, I, I just I, I, didn't, I couldn't hear both of you, so let's start with you. What's your name? All right. Um, I'm from Brandon from Queens. Okay. Go ahead, Brandon. What do you got to say about this? Yeah, I live in, I live in um, uh, New York all my life, and there was a term called suck my blank. And girls are using it in the mid-90s. And I kind of found it like, was like, are you like a Negro or like a male? Mm. And she said it was such energy. When the girls co-signed her, she got euphoric. Mm. And after that, a lesbian girl told me, she said, they get off on that, you know. And I was like, what you talking about? Because I'm a dude that doesn't care. I was getting girls and all that. She's like, no, 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 no. She takes you down, so other women will see that and they'll get off on it. And I was like, I've turned those other girls that got disappointed from guys that are like you. And if maybe they get effed over or whatever it is, they're softer to more of my uh, my attention, my lesbian attention. That's why lesbian is going up. And I I didn't get it until like it happened a few times with different women, and they'll tell me different dynamics. Years later, my best friend tried to turn me, you know, and I'm like, yo, what's going on with that? Hmm. Lifelong friendships, because you know. If you're a good man, you can have relationships and still have good relationships with the same women that you no longer talking to mm. because you're a good man. The thing about it is undermining the good man so he harms every other dude and woman behind him. Mm. And that's my ultimate question is, do you think white supremacy, and this is, I think like I said feminism, considering Roman times and how they felt because their masculinity was crumbling. I wanted to know, do you think white supremacy has a full autonomy of knowledge on the mind of how this breakdown has happened? I think they do. What, 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 whether it has full autonomy. Well, I think it produces, again, it produces the environment that even creates this mindset, that creates the, mm-hmm. the behavioral patterns that are a response to these materially shifted positions. So, so you know, it, it's, it's not, because I don't want people to walk away thinking that these are just some arbitrary ideas that, that you know, somebody woke up and decided to live out one day. They are a product of a mass shift and, and how people are able to engage the world because they're, they're even on a material level, but even in, in terms of institutional access, they've been able to engage life on a whole different set of terms. 
right? And and much of the time on terms that their men haven't been able to, right? So that said, I do think you're right about that. Go ahead. I was talking because my boy's been talking about scandal and other shows where empowered black women at the same time neutering a white man or neutering a position of men in power. And I said, what better way than show it of seven, eight seasons of the president being neutered by a black female walking around in white suits all the time. Mm. I felt like there's no way that's really affecting the massive population. I'm like, look at the seasons, bro, because we know about the industry. And anything more than three seasons, it doesn't matter if it's turning a profit or not turning a profit. The whole point is your mind. Mm. You can see it when that black man show had it when he was a James Bond in 1990, and it ran for six months. But it was mm. one of the top rated shows, and they canceled it. It's okay. not for the profit. It's about what it does to the mind collectively. So okay. it brings up your, how my grandmother called, your broadcast and mm-hmm. how you infusingly feel better about yourself. In the 90s, they ran through a lot of movies where black men were dating white women. Mm-hmm. And now you see a lot of movies where white men are dating black women. On commercials, yeah. It, right, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And they're running it back forward where she hate me or something of that nature where the man in the movie is always a submissive, working with the environment type of character. Mm-hmm. Not someone that's really fighting the beast that there is until they've been put in position where they're forced to recognize the beast, okay. so to speak. Okay. Well, All I appreciate right. that, man. Thank Blessings you. Blessings you, All right? Right. Oh man, appreciate you calling in. Um, who's our second caller? Hey, hey, Doctor Hassan, how are you? I'm good. Okay, this is um, Anwar Uru, aka Afro Insurrection. Yes. <laughs> um, What's up? So, you know, I was, hey, hey, I'm good. I'm great. You know, all things considered, right? Um, I really liked your 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 archetypal archetypical breakdown, and I think about how those same archetypes not only happen in our within our community on a regular day to day basis, but also how that uh, works in the academy or the public intellectual sphere, right? Mm. So I'm thinking about like right. So I'm thinking about like that combative provocateur slash scholar teacher, like an Amanda Steele, mm. right? Where like. She only uses um, information to then uh, throw it back at you and then to spar with you. But the moment that you spar with her, she accuses you of attacking her. Ah, yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then I think about, yeah, how uh, that diplomat character is also intersected in that where uh, they tend to show that they are inclusive, especially when we think about LGBTQ uh, communities this is where you're wrong, and then at the same time, they co-opt or usurp uh, that movement in order to weaponize often against uh, black males mm. in particular and uh, masculine-presenting uh, folks, too, if we think of trans men. Mm. So I was just thinking, like, this is a really uh, great uh, model that you put up there, and I'm also thinking about, uh, I tweeted earlier, the way in which white supremacist patriarchy works is it accuses women of any form of violence. Mm. Uh, it makes men, especially black men, of the progenitors of violence, especially sexual violence. Mm-hmm. Because I personally feel that uh, a data pinkish behavior is, is sexually violent. He would, if, if it was the roles reversed, he would automatically say, "Oh, he groomed her, um, yes. he worked her, he manipulated her, he took advantage of her uh, fragile mental." Uh, and physical state too, because I'm sure that there's evidence of that, and and of course evidence is shown. He's re- revealed August that uh, he's a victim of sexual assault uh, too. So mm-hmm. I just want to know your thoughts on that. No, I appreciate that, and I think you're dead on, man. Mm-hmm. I, I I think we haven't reconciled with, and again, that's part of what what I try to do with the Onyx Report overall is to really get at the issues that men grapple with, and one of those issues is the way that they can be victimized by women. 
but we're living in a society that is so, you know, ensconced in a, in a certain idea of chivalry, we don't regard that as even a possibility. I mean, I think when we heard about uh, Jada in August, you know, the first responses I saw, you know, of course, was laughter. Uh, then I started to see e even men saying that this is Will's fault. And then, of course, people went to the rumor mill on why she must have done these things because there had to be a reason. It couldn't be that she just did them. She did them because of some kind of trauma or pain that a man caused. Right. And then from there, it became about uh, the violation of her privacy, August, you know, revealing something he shouldn't have. But never a moment where well, I won't say never because I will credit. I have seen men and women calling Jada out more than I've seen any other kind of woman called out in recent years, but there was, there was still this inherent idea that, you know, in some way she was victimized because Will didn't do something right. And August revealed something about her. He wasn't supposed to, and so on and so forth. But the, the whole position of her exploiting her position as a maternal authority figure, as, as, as a point of figure who is there to help her son's friend. We, we you know, many of us didn't really, I won't even say us. There were many people that didn't acknowledge right. how exploitive that position can be and how much damage it can cause. But they can acknowledge it when it's men. And I think there are several people, including myself, that made the argument that if Will started an affair with one of his daughter's friends, right, who was also psychologically right. vulnerable, that we wouldn't have had any hesitation on how to critique that. We wouldn't. I mean, it, it, it goes back to the archetypes because we've had this paternal, oppressive, exploitive, you know, masculine archetype. We've had that for several decades, so we know how to readily interpret that when we see it. But to this day, seeing how many people are fighting to defend Jada, you can see how much we don't have an archetype in place for how women can can engage and exploit people uh, themselves. You know, and when you get at you know, and this affects us in the real world, too, because when you look at the data, whether it's LGBT intimate partner relationships, whether it's it's it's, um, you know, and particularly in terms of, of lesbian relationships, whether it's the bidirectional abuse that occurs in heterosexual relationships, people have a cognitive dissonance kind of response to the idea that women can be as violent as men that it, or or more so. It's such a foreign concept to so many people because it's not been made an archetype. It's not been made a feature in mainstream culture. It's just something that maybe, you know, one or two women act out and do. But the data actually suggests otherwise. And we don't know how to reconcile with that because it doesn't fit what we've been socialized to believe about men and women and masculinity and femininity. So I, I agree with you. Yeah, yeah, it's really... It's really profound and I was just thinking of how hard it is for most people to think of the word entanglement as a synonym to entrapment. Yes. Right? So, yes. Yeah, yeah, I, I, mean, yeah. it, I mean that I had not really been familiar with that term used that way but when I heard her Me use either. it the first thing I heard was this absolves you of any responsibility. It absolves it, it absolves you of any part. You know, it's, and I think somebody said it is it, you you fell into a spider web. Oh, my God, I I'm entangled. It, it just happened. No, mm -hmm. you put yourself in a position to exploit somebody that you could exploit for your own sexual needs, your own attend your own need for attention. Well, you did all of that to a very vulnerable young man. And just like with Amber Heard, with Johnny Depp, she had the attitude yeah. that, you know, this can't hurt me. 
Nobody's going to believe it. If it, you know, that's, that's one of the things we heard Amber heard, heard say to Johnny Depp, nobody's going to believe you. Well, right. up until, you know, the last year or so, they'd probably be right in other circumstances. Nobody would. But when me too, hashtag me too became a central, you know, focal point in the culture, um, it, it began to, to be its own, you know, kind of, uh, it raises, it raised its own problems because we started to see female predators that me yeah. too did not know what to do with, you know, yeah. me too just kind of swept them under the rug. You know, they, they, they kind of symbolically gestured that men happen. I mean, I think that's where you get, um, what's the brother's name? Um, oh goodness. Um, he escapes me at the moment. Bald, but Terry Crews, right? They, they, they kind of symbolically gestured at Terry Crews, but they kept the focus on female victims. But the more you had male victims of female behavior, Me Too just got quieter and quieter, right? And, I, and so I, I think, you know, men started to say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, if you're, you're not going to speak on this, but you're supposed to speak for those who've been violated and exploited, especially along sexual grounds, then there must be something going on here more than just defending the innocent or defending the exploited. So, yeah. yeah. Any, any last comments, yeah. professor? No, it, uh, um, it was just when you were talking about Terry Crews and how uh, the Me Too movement in a way imploded on itself with his scenario and maybe think about Avatar Ronell, uh, the philosopher at NYU with her sexual um, allegation charges and how all of these for, uh, prominent feminists and LGBTQ scholars rally behind her, and then when they realize, like, oh crap, this really happened, you know, everybody pull back, pull back, pull back. Yeah. And then the caveat is, you know, even with all of that and, and was put on suspension, now she is allowed to come back to work. Right. You know, and and makes me think of all of the cases of uh, women, uh, predator, school teacher predators who uh, at most be suspended for two weeks, but they're allowed to return back to work, uh, keep their pensions, their wages, et cetera, or be put on very minimum um, uh, uh, sentencing, mm -hmm. you know, with the infamous Mary Kay Letourneau cases made me think of all of that. Right. Um, but no, I say I'll let to say, uh, you just made my head uh, explode in a great way. It's helping me and it's inspiring me to do the work. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Hey, man, I appreciate it. And I appreciate you, man. Talk to you soon. All right. For those who are on Inner Light, I think we're going to be uh, we're going to be uh, signing off on Inner Light. Those on YouTube and Facebook, I'm going to continue for a little while longer. Um, so um, you can find this on YouTube at my channel, Dr. T. Hassan Johnson. Like I said, it'll still be going for a minute for a little while. Uh, and after I'm done, it'll still be up and available. Um, and we'll go from there. All right. Now, uh, continuing on. You know, I was going to give some examples that I've witnessed firsthand of this kind of narcissistic behavior from a variety of these different um, these different archetypes. Now, some of these have been people I've met casually. Some of them have been people I've dated. Some of these have been people I've had relationships with. Some of these have been students that I've had. I mean, over the last uh, 22, 23 odd years. I've seen a number of these different archetypes. And this is literally, this is a list that I probably put together over the course of a, an hour. I mean, this is, this, this is just the tip of the iceberg. I haven't even asked the men, especially the men in the chat or the men who are calling in, 
if they have any additional archetypes, because there are, you know, again, so, so I'm saying that to say, if I can produce this from experience within, within a time frame of an hour, what are we really talking about? Because, you know, Anwar just brought up a whole nother one that I hadn't, or no, I'm sorry, I think it was Brandon, I think it was, who brought up a whole nother one that I hadn't, I hadn't included in here. And that's one who has a very masculine, you know, kind of uh, domineering kind of presence in terms of actually mimicking what I would call the stereotypical male idea. But, you know, so there's definitely room. I'm not, like I said at the beginning of the show, I'm not arguing that this list is exhaustive. I'm saying that this is a starting point, but I'm providing these 12 to say, this is, you know, what I've experienced, you know, what I've seen. Um, so I talked about, there was actually, you know, a rapper that I brought to Fresno State. And I don't know if he wants me to include his name, so I won't out of respect, but he's very, he's a very prominent classic hip hop MC um, who, if you are Generation X, you are, you have definitely played his albums, particularly in the early nineties. And he and I had this conversation one night and we were talking about, you know, we were talking about relationships and I shared with him that I had been approached by these two older women who were trying to get me into, you know, a polygamist relationship that they framed. So they had identified me as somebody that they wanted to be in this polygamy. And it was two of them. And I was explaining to him how this, you know, kind of subverted polygamy because it, 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 it wasn't a dynamic where they were asking me to kind of head of household, a new household with multiple you know, segments to it. They, they wanted me to be the wallet and the phallus to an agreed upon arrangement between them. Whether or not I was attracted to them was irrelevant, whether or not I had anything to say about it, whether or not I had a life philosophy that they would need to learn about, none of that was relevant. It was strictly a matter of, could I provide sex and money in this arrangement that they agreed upon? And the funniest part to it is when I shared it with them, he named them. He was like, yeah, they approached me as well. They came to his concert and, and tried to approach, but you know, both of them were in their mid fifties. It, it was just, it, it was ridiculous. You know, this is kind of one of those kind of dynamics that I'm talking about or, you know, engaging people who are argumentative or verbally combative really for no reason at all. Right. Simply because you're a male or take a black male in particular articulating an idea that they are, that they need to learn from. And I've had this kind of dynamic, whether it's coming from, you know, no, nah, it wasn't Chuck D and I haven't met Pimp C, so I'm, I'm not going to put his name out there, <laughs> but I wish I could. And maybe one of these days I'll bring him on the show and see if he'd be willing to talk about it. But we had a good laugh, you know, about that whole idea of this kind of, of new polygamy that's rooted in, um, you know, this kind of, of, of control that, that they extend to you and you, you objectively just pay for whatever it is they want. Um, another dynamic was, a, this has actually occurred with a friend of mine uh, in the last couple months where he had a woman who approached him on what's, what's, what we might refer to as a polyandrous situation, right? Where she wanted to have multiple husbands. So they went out on a date and, uh, as they were dating, you know, she, <laughs> she introduced him to her current boyfriend and basically broke down how she wanted them both to, uh, you know, basically be her husbands, so to speak. Uh, suffice it to say, my friend didn't go along with it. And we found out later that 
the other guy that was around disappeared as well. But the idea here is simply that, you know, men have become these objectified units to be called in and put in position wherever it's useful. I used to call this back in the 90s, I used to call it the insert man here dynamic because I would go out on dates and I would meet women who, you know, had their whole life planned together. And all they wanted for me was to fit into the drama and the framework that they already had in place. They just needed sperm and they needed somebody with status, with a job. But you just need to shut up and stand there and let me run this kind of show. I used to call it the insert man here dynamic. But I'm seeing that it's kind of built on that and gone in a variety of different directions. Right. Um, one of the most cons consistent things I've also been seeing is this really what I would call this confusion. Uh, about, you know, this idea of gender roles and what roles we should play. And by confusion, I mean, you have a dynamic where you have women that want to be in a position of authority in the relationship, that want to take on what we call traditional masculine ideas about who leads, who makes decisions, so on and so forth. But then at the same time, want you to open doors, to pay bills, to, you know, so, it, so the way it kind of came out to me in one situation is when somebody said to me, well, your money is my money and my money is my money, right? Goes back to the insert man here dynamic, but it still plays in. So there would be times where she would want to be traditionally, you know, she would want me to treat, treat, treat her as a traditional woman and, and, you know, kind of have this kind of, um, you know, treat her like this dainty feminine entity. And then other times she wants, you know, you to sh shut up and sit down and do what she said. You know, this kind of framework where masculine and feminine roles are conveniently dissolved, but dissolved only in her interest. And other than that, it's not acceptable, right? So when I talk about the confusion of gender roles, I'm not talking about two people sitting down to establish for them what the gender roles in their relationship is gonna be. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a dynamic where the gender roles are solely subject to her decision-making and what she thinks should happen versus regardless of what you may want. Right. This kind of framework is what I'm calling into question. Um, or, you know, you, you might. Well, anyway, the last thing I was going to get on. Was this idea, and I talked about this a little bit in my video from the Will, uh, Will and Jada Red Table Talk is this whole idea of the bad marriage for life idea. And one of the things I didn't say in my video was at the end of it, when Jada and Will laughingly gave each other that. And, and cheered out bad marriage for life. One of the things I kind of witnessed in that was a very happy Jada, right? A very happy Jada that did not have to be accountable, right? Did not have to be accountable, did not have to really own her actions. Uh, Will pushed back a little bit, but not a lot. Um, but in that happiness, she got to be absolved of her behavior. And so one of the things that that kind of led me to is that if we're going to have this idea of a bad marriage for life, if that's something you're going to ascribe to, and in the video, I talk about why you shouldn't, but and definitely why I don't. But if that's something you're going to do, then we have to make sure that that discussion moves way far beyond what solely works in one person's interest. Now, I got another call coming in from uh, 425 Area Code. So let me see if we can... Make this one work. 425, what's your name? Where are you calling from? This is Jonathan. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you, Jonathan. Go ahead. 
All right, how you doing? Um, I can sound like it's a it's an honor to be on the call. Um, I'm located in Washington State right now, but I'm really from the South Side of Chicago. Oh, okay. Um, I just I was um calling in because like you with you your architect and your analytics and your breakdown just like you know just compel me. I watch your show whenever I can catch it, and so I'm just like, oh, he has a caller number. Let me try to get on that real quick. Um, <laughs> we are trying to see um, we trying to see if this is gonna work, but you know so far it seems like it's kind of going. All right. Um, I just wanted to chime in. I'm like, I'm in my early 20s. Um, and like, I'm actually like an activist and I'm in politics and everything like that. I don't want to give too much away because I don't want to dox myself. Mm. Um, but just because, you know, like, I, I feel like this convers these type of conversations, the, the, the world isn't ready for it yet almost. Mm. Um, so I just try to be careful of that. But in light of that, um, I, I'm experiencing some of like a lot of the archetypes that you're that you're mentioning as a young black man moving throughout the society, uh, especially here in the Pacific Northwest, and then also like reflecting on my time back home in Chicago. Um, and then I I noticed that like in my activism and some of my um, some of my work, um, that there's another archetype. Like I'm as a young black man, I'm actually like routinely mistaken um, for someone older than I am, more mature, and it was like that. And when people find out my age, they're Pleasantly surprised and everything like that, but I also notice is that like I frequently get, you know, when when it comes to black women in these advocacy spaces, I'm just gonna be behind it. So there was this there was this incident where during the George Floyd protest, um, like I was pretty much pushed out of my own like my own campaign for temporary um, with a black woman and a, um, a gay uh, LGBTQ um, white man, right? Um, and that was because I was angry and I was upset. And I spoke truth to power and I told them, you know, like it was around the fact, um, around posting and reposting George Floyd's, like, you know, the, the murder. And I said that you don't need to do that as part of advocacy. Like, as a young black man, I already, like, that's really traumatizing. I already know that I'm marked for death in society. Like, and as an activist, I, I draw that, I have that fatalism, that, you know, that fatalism in, like, imbued and embedded in everything I do. You know, as a young black man, like, it's either that I'm marked, I'm gonna die. I'm gonna, you know, be killed. I'm gonna go to jail. Or I'm gonna be exiled in the work in this country, and then especially in the field and the work that I've taken up and the mantle that I've taken up. And so I tried to connect with that, um, connect to them with that, and like my anger. And I, I will admit, I was, I was pretty upset, and I went off, you mm. know. Um, but the thing was is that, like, I, I noticed that in our going back and forth, one, everyone thought that I was attacking the black woman. When in fact, like I always supported the black woman, and I always, you know, protected the black woman from them. And then on top of that, it was like she, she then, like she sub, like I don't know how to describe it. Like she tried to make me in a smaller position. Like she regulated me to a smaller stat status than her when we were supposed to be equals. And as a, and she did that to dismiss my opinions. Um, around like what I was talking about and she pretty much negated my my issues around you know black male death and black men and young black men and everything like that and preferred to go her own way and you know I would never do that when it comes to you know talking about black women and how you advocate and how you grieve and how you would like to see that advocacy show up in, in these activism spaces and these advocacy spaces mm -hmm. and so like I'm not sure like if they're like I kind of feel like I, at the end of the day, when I was no longer useful or when I quote unquote became problematic or butted heads with what she was doing, because usually she's like, I let her do, you know, be the dominant, be the lead, not just like kind of like support and everything like that. Like let her be this personality. But when I finally had, you know, like, oh, wait, no, this is this and I'm not backing down. I was kind of like 
thrown to the side and like I don't know how to describe it. And I'm wondering if that's just not, you know, me as a young black man, if that's something that you also see into where like in these activist spaces, especially around the black male body, where we're like we're used to a point but we're used in a way to progress the work and but then not really like taking in consideration and tossed to the side we have our own opinions and objections. And what with that arc like is it can it be considered an archetype? Is that like something that's like a well, foundation or repetitive that's not just you know, that's, that's what I'm calling into. No, I, and, I, and I appreciate the question. I think, it, you know, it might be, need to be a little more specific as an archetype, but it's definitely something that, you know, many black men have talked about because it, it goes back to what I was saying earlier. When you're raised in a, in, a, in, a, in a context, in a culture, really, that has proposed that you are less than your women, what you're, what you're describing is the, the fallout of that, Right. Where, where, you know, especially in terms of activism, because statistically speaking, the issues that activism that draws the most attention to activism, black male death at the hand of the police, you know what I mean? Uh, uh, homelessness, you know, it, it, homicide, the issues, you know, that are most pertinent when you talk about the realm of activism. Well, when it comes to the black community, black males are usually at the top of that list in terms of being vulnerable. So you become a very useful tool to represent a certain type of idea, but, you know, nobody wants your voice if it breaks from, 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 you know, where the dominant, you know, black female voice is coming from. And part of the reason for that is because, you know, again, if you're fundamentally seen as beneath her, the most you can do is perform a masculinity that she pre-approves. And if you seem like you're going to violate that script, you need to be gotten, you need to be dismissed. You need to be gotten rid of. And, and it becomes something that's wholly acceptable you know, to other women who've been socialized in the same way and some men for that matter, but nobody understands why you buck at that, right? And part of what you're actually saying is, you know, not only am I a human being that has something to say that may be different from you, but as a black male, I am recognizing that, you know, my voice has been dismissed. And I've been hearing since the 90s, right? This whole question raised at black men, can you follow a black woman? Can you handle a, a woman that makes more than you or is in a higher you know, status position, you know, an idea, the sub, you know, the kind of subtle subtext is that you can't, and you really need to, if you're going to move past your sexism, learn how to submit to the black female voice. This is the kind of, you know, idea that I've seen lobbed in, in, at men, at black men, and black men have been challenged by. But really, when you look at, you know, much of the data, black men are, are really the most progressive groups of black men. We actually, you know, especially for a generation raised by women, it's not female authority that black men inherently have a problem with. It's the abuse of it and the presumed assumption of black male inferiority that black males take issue with, even when we don't have the vocabulary for it. You know what I mean? There's not, look, the, I'm not talking about my show, but I'm saying you don't hear the kind of things that I'm talking about on a national scale, on a national platform, because we don't have a vocabulary for it. It's not part of the you know, national imagination. So, you know, if that happens one day, it happens one day, but we're nowhere near it. Right. And, and so as long as that's the case, you know, we, we live in this environment that is supported by mainstream culture within the black community that you need to be somewhat subservient, you know, and, and in that position, even if you were, were the main, uh, you know, political figure, even if you were ahead of the campaign or whatever it is, um, and we saw this with Obama, you'd have to cater 
right? You'd have to cater to black feminists, black female voices, mainly because in hopes that you don't get canceled in this cancel culture, in hopes that that doesn't happen, right? And 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 if you've done anything that is even questionable, it makes your position that much more tenable. But really, what we're getting at at the bottom all of, of all of this is a way in which black male inferiority has become a feature in black culture, in Africana culture, in African-American culture. It's become a feature that is is both prevalent and ignored at the same time. And by ignored, I don't mean people aren't paying attention to it. I mean, you're not supposed to talk about it. And if you do, you're going to be left out there as if this is something in your head. Right. That's the kind of environment we're in. Yeah, you're gonna be ostracized. That's what I, I'm kind of not with the authorization, but like, well, I I kind of have become more situationally and politically aware, you know, of like my surroundings since that incident. And I I noticed that like if I if I'm too critical on this particular issue, you know, and trying to push push back on that, it's like it's, I can face waves, and it's like I don't I don't think that there's enough black men like around me right now that's on the same page like as you and as you know. As myself, I like that, that would be able to wrap around me and support me, at least that I know of. And maybe it's just my isolation in this. Um, well, I guess my next question to you would be, um, so as for just advice on how to handle some of these archetypes, like how, you know, a lot of this looks like it's going to be like multi-generational healing and therapy and everything like that. But then how do I navigate this in? Like in the right now? Because in, I, I really want to, I want to reveal like the stuff that I'm doing and maybe at another time, you know, and when it gets more comfortable, I'll just lax up and just say, forget it and throw and you know, throw the mask off. But like right now, I'm in a position to where like a lot of lives are online around, you know, especially on the issue that you talk about homelessness, um, mass incarceration, mm-hmm. black male death and everything like that. Mm-hmm. And like I'm I'm in I'm blessed to be in the position that I'm in to, to do the work. But now I have to navigate this entirely new system. And I and like it was so it's a blind side because I always assume I always make this assumption based on my in Chicago, like the black woman would always like be by my side and like understand inherently understand where I'm coming from. And in reality, there's this like this underlining anti-black maleness or vitriol they have for me that I don't even know where, where it stems from. Like I didn't do yeah. anything. I'm not, if, if a black man did something to you, I'm not the one that did it. I'm the one who inherited the world and trying to fix it. You know, well, I, don't, I don't know how to, how do I navigate this? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to answer you off the air, but I appreciate you calling in, man. Thank you. Okay. I'm sorry. I talk, I talk a lot. Okay. No, no, no. It wasn't that at all, but I, but I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Thank all right. You. So, you know, part of what he raised was the question of how to deal with it, you know, because, you know, he's talking about, you know, trying to make sense of it. He expected, you know, a certain level of support, found it to be quite the opposite. Uh, part again, part of that is it's it's coming out of the larger cultural framework. It's not just in Chicago politics. It's not just in your office building at work. It's not just at your class, you know, at, at the university you're in. It's much wider than that. It's multi-generational. It's a very prevailing idea. And it's what we refer to as anti-black misandry. You know, it's misandry. That's really what it comes down to, a hatred of men. But in a very particular way, it's a very particular type of misandry that's very much directed at black men. And it's directed at black men mainly because of what the state, i.e. when we talk about white supremacy, what they've been able to introduce into the dynamic, which is to promote access for women and girls 
at the expense of men and boys. And, and that being said, your failure to keep up as a collective with what women, black women have been able to achieve marks you as less than and thus deserving of hostility, of, of you know, of, of rage um, and, a, and a certain level of hatred. And so you find this happening in many different spaces and taking many different forms. Look, I, I grew up with a single mother. I remember uh, many a war council in my, my mother's living room. You know, it, it, and by that, I mean, if you ever saw the movie uh, Jungle Fever, you remember the war council scene, right? Where you had the women together in the living room, angry, frustrated, and, and, and you know, talking about men. Well, I grew up seeing that. And every dude I knew who grew up in, with a single mother saw the same thing. And then we heard it when we got around girls at school and when we get, went to college, we heard more of it. And then we started to see it in movies and on television going from the 80s through the 90s to the 2000s. This growing kind of animosity toward black men was something that was cultivated over time. It's not an accident. It's not arbitrary. It didn't happen haphazardly. It's very much a response to the different aspects or levels of access that black men and black women had in regard to the larger society. And the degree to which black men did not represent the idea that many of these women began to put together in the elite spaces, many of them began to congregate, you know, looking at their elite counterparts, especially white women and the lives they were able to live. The idea of masculinity and manhood that they constructed was wholly separate from the realities of black life, particularly black male life. And that produced, that space between the two produced this animosity in many ways. And so it, when you ask about what we can do about it, well, there's a couple levels of that that I'll answer to. There's the particular archetypes I talked about, and then there's the kind of larger misandry as a whole. Um, as far as the larger misandry overall, one of the things we have to do is become very adept with the data follow the black masculinists that I point out and read their works, read their social media, whether we're talking about Dr. Tommy J. Curry, whether we're talking about Dr. Ronald Neal, um, you can check out Dr. Lehman Basil, follow, you know, and, and on YouTube, you can, you can listen to, you know, BGS Ibmore, you can listen to Angry Man, you can listen to Crimson Cure, you can listen, there's a number of people you're going to find online, Kevin Samuels, listen to what they're talking about. Get past whether or not the language offends you and listen to what's being said and check to see if there's any merit in your life in regard to what they're saying, right? But the point of the matter is, if we're going to talk about addressing this larger misandry, we have to first be able to point it out and empirically frame how inaccurate it is and how it, how it doesn't reflect the reality of Black life. We have to first, we have to combat it with accurate data, accurate historical narratives. We have to do all of that because the historical narrative has even been changed. Right. The whole from slavery through the Renaissance, through uh, Reconstruction, to the Harlem Renaissance, through the Black Power, the Civil Rights Movement, the Black Power Movement. All of it has been reimagined along very misandrous lines. The logic of BLM right now is that women and LGBTs have to lead because black men are oppressive and they always have been. That's the logic. But the only way you can reach that conclusion is to redefine the historical narrative going back to the end of slavery, the end of the Civil War, and reconstructing it in this, this fictitious way where black men were on par with white men and white women oppressing black women. That's the narrative they've reconstructed. 
And so we have to we have to combat that with accurate and right data data. You know what I mean? So we need to read. We need to listen to the works of the black masculinists who are actually breaking this stuff down and, and challenge these narratives. And these narratives don't just present themselves in classrooms or, or, or at activist meetings. They present themselves at Thanksgiving gatherings. They present themselves at family reunions when the women get together and rehearse why they should hate men and how men have hurt them as if that's not been a two way street. Because we, we're talking about responses to environmental conditions much of the time. When you talk about abuse, when you talk about it, it, any of these issues that we're dealing with in the black community, homicide, you name it, they're mostly environmental. But for some reason, right, the feminist narrative has been able to construct these environmental issues as something solely men do to women. And the small percentage of women that may do something bad are only doing it in self-defense. They're only doing it because a man made them. Right. Next time you see an article up about a teacher that sexually abuses a child, read the comments and watch how many women come in and begin to ask questions about what happened to her in her childhood. What made her do it? What hurt her to make her see all of these kind of insane things happening with Jada? Because we can't imagine women doing these things because they're human. It has to be a reason that goes back to a man. So, again, addressing the larger Mazandrian society, we have to challenge that with accurate data and accurate historical analysis. Now, specific to these 12 archetypes, um, I'm not in this show gonna go into how to address each one individually, and maybe that's something we can do in the future. But one of the things I will say overall is the majority of these, if not all of them, are rooted in a very particular type of narcissism. Each one of these archetypes is a dysfunctional perspective rooted in a very narcissistic self-idea self-idea that has been buoyed and supported by the, the community over the last few decades, rooted in the material gains or the policy gains of that, that are particularly propelled, at least given the illusion of propelling. That's all another conversation. Because you still have many of these women who are growing old, dying alone with no money. So how much this has actually propelled them can be debated. But at least it's been proposed that it's propelled them. Right. And so that being said, these archetypes represent very particular forms of narcissism rooted in an idea of being fundamentally better than the men they're dealing with. They walk into the relationship with this belief that they're fundamentally better. And yes, you can actually and some of you have already done this. You can see that there are people you've met that have aspects of a variety of different archetypes. I don't mean to suggest that each one works in isolation. I showed you that I see Jada in a couple of those. I've met a number of women that have three or four of them, right? So there, there are archetypes that can be dipped into and used to varying degrees. But the overall best response to them is that, at, is that fundamentally narcissists feed on your attention, your energy, and your participation in their central idea. So what you have to do ultimately is remove that, take all the air out of the room. Provide them with none of that, none of your attention, none of your participation, none of your <laughs> subservience, if it's gone that far. Remove all of that. Give them nothing to feed off of until they have to go find somebody else or feed off themselves. But do not feed into it. That's the central idea I want you to walk away from with this with. <clears throat> right? They need you to believe that you need them. That's how they function. Each one of these narcissistic, you know, archetypes need you to participate in their drama, 
to feed them what they need. And so I need you to become accustomed to not feeding it. You don't need it. There's no situation where you need any of it. I need you to develop the capacity to walk away. Plain and simple. Let them go. Do not feed their desire to rule over you. What they're actually doing is trying to is trying to garner your attention and feed off of it. So you starve it out of them by letting them have none of it. Right? Give them no audience to feed off of. Don't take anything from them. Don't give anything. Bounce. And actually develop the capacity to be still. Be still. Right? If it is such that you want to be in a relationship, which I have no problem with. I'm not one of these guys arguing that you should just completely bail on women for the rest of your life. Look, if you want to be a relationship, all I would say to you is be aware of the different possibilities in terms of what women can bring to the table. And when you do identify it, don't feed it. You know, don't feed it. That's really what I want. I would want to get across to you. Um, anyway, I'm not going to keep you guys on too much longer. I appreciate you guys being patient with me tonight. I know we've been flipping back and forth, uh, trying to make sure all this comes together. So that being said, uh, thank you. Thank you for everybody that's donated. <clears throat> you can check this out on YouTube um, after we get off. And I will close uh, the way you guys know I like to close it out, right? I'm here to tell you, brothers, we are not criminals by birth, perennial rapists, incapable intellects, man children, sperm donors, child support wellsprings, success objects, walking phalluses, ATM machines, lottery tickets, unpaid bodyguards, interchangeable stepfathers, child discipline proxies, unpaid repairmen, workhorses, or any other socially accepted dehumanizing stereotype. We are thinkers, inventors, innovators, leaders, fathers, and men. Embrace your humanity, know your worth, and extend your time, attention, and resources only to those who genuinely respect you. Um, so with that in mind, remember your worth is not defined by meeting other people's narcissistic, selfish, and unrealistic needs. You define your worth. Peace.